and the coach said, hey, before we go out there today, remember this one thing, I would listen. I've never played in the Masters. I'm trying to will it in today. I'm actually trying to will spring in today. Uh, I've never played in the Masters, but if I did, and I was on the 18th hole, and my caddy said to me, this putt breaks this way, I would listen. Sometimes people say things, and they're the one thing you need to pay attention to. I've never been in war, but if I was in war, and right before I went in, the commanding officer said, hey, when you get to your destination, remember this one thing. I would listen. Sometimes there's things that we have to pay attention to, and there's one point today, and it's the point that I think all of us need before we go into this world this next week. And here it is. God's sovereignty makes your story sweeter. That's the only point that you need to remember. God's sovereignty makes your story sweeter. You have to decide, if you're not a believer, or even if you are a believer, you have to decide what you think about God's sovereignty. Because most of us, even as believers, are closet fatalists. You can be a fatalist where you says, well, God's just going to do whatever he wants to do, and there's nothing I can do about it. I'm, I'm too much of a, just a person in this whole system, and it's just going to happen, whatever's going to happen. And that basically ties your hands from responsibility. You feel like you have no way that you can kind of engage in this world. Or you could be... Uh, philosophically it's Epicureanism but you can be a person where you feel like you can take matters into your own hands and if your life's awful it's because uh, you brought it upon yourself you can do something to tie God's hands and it's all up to you and it's all up to your effort those are the two kind of sides that you can fall on or you can believe deeply in the sovereignty of God uh, for the non-believer if you're not a believer here today if you haven't quite crossed the line of faith yet. We're glad you're here. But this is why the personal nature of God is so important to Christians. And because God is not only governing the whole world, but he's also personal. You've been reading through your Bible, I hope, and uh, you've seen Hagar. And what happened to Hagar was not really great. But at the end of the day, she prays a prayer, and her pray, prayer was, you're the God who sees me. Even though what happened to me was not your desire, you're the God who sees me. You're the God who knows me. It's the personal nature of God with the sovereignty of God combined together. Margaret Clarkson, I think, gives one of the best definitions of sovereignty. She wrote a phenomenal book called Grace Grows Best in Winter. And it's about her personal, personal lifelong suffering physically and how she dealt with that. And in that book, Clarkson says this. She says, The sovereignty of God is the one impregnable rock to which the suffering human heart must cling. The circumstances surrounding our lives are no accident. They may be the work of evil, but that evil is is held firmly within the mighty hand of a sovereign God. So you've been reading through your Bible. I hope that's what we've been doing as a church. Let me say just a couple things about that, and then we'll move on. First, you've made it through two books already. You've made it through Genesis, and you've made it through Job. Congratulations. Give yourself a cookie or a nap or something. Enjoy that. 
two big books that most of you have probably never read through. We're going to have a celebration on uh, February 20th for those that are kind of in the process with us, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, and then if, if you haven't read, if, if you're not in the stream with us, jump in. Today we start Exodus, so just jump in. The water's fine. Do what you can with the process. But we've been going through the last couple of days through the story of Joseph, and I just want to remind us about it and then highlight a few key points, and then uh, we will be done. Uh, Joseph, as you know, was more loved by his father than any of the other boys. And uh, if you could just imagine that, some of you have multiple siblings. He was the one who was more loved. He had this beautiful coat made for him. And the story kind of picks up after his dream. He had a dream where the other brothers were going to have to serve him. And then Jacob, his dad, sends him to go check on the other brothers who are doing their chores. Now imagine that. If you're a sibling, and your younger brother who's more loved, who just got the Xbox, just got the PlayStation 4, he's been in his room doing that all day, you've been outside cutting the yard, and he gets sent out to you uh, to just check and make sure you're doing your job. I mean, of course they're going to resent him. And it's more than resentment. They said, let's, let's kill him. And then they talked their way out of that, and they said, no, let's sell him. And they sold him for 20 shekels. Uh, which is a pretty high price. I mean, Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, and he got 20, you know, pre-inflation a couple thousand years beforehand. <laughs> so pretty high price. They, they took his coat, they dipped it in goat's blood, because all of us use blood, whether we know it or not, to try to cover up our tracks, don't we? Until we find the blood of Christ, which covers our sins. So they try to cover up their tracks, their sin, with this goat's blood telling Jacob that he had died. He gets sent to Egypt, and it says in the text, uh, chapter 39, I believe, the Lord was with him. The sovereignty of God. He was never, ever abandoned. He rose into Potiphar's house pretty far, and then uh, became over all of it until Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. He fled with his cloak in her hands, and now he loses his second cloak. <laughs> he gets put in prison where he interprets the, team, the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, and uh, you know after that they forget about him. Then he finally interprets the dreams of Pharaoh. He gets brought out of prison. He marries a girl named Aseneth. Never baptize a kid named Aseneth. Somebody should redeem that. And he has two kids with her, Manasseh and Ephraim. Do you know what those names mean? As I told you last week, names are important in the Bible. Manasseh means God has made me forget all of my trouble in my father's house. You're the, you're the God who's redeemed me from this. Ephraim means God has made me fruitful in the land of suffering. God has made me fruitful in the land of suffering. Let me just repeat the point. God's sovereignty makes your story sweeter. I'm not going to go through uh, the next couple chapters because they're pretty intense starting at chapter 43. But basically his brothers come to him. He says, I have a younger brother named Benjamin who is also from my mom, Rachel, <clears throat> my only full brother. So I want to meet him. So he keeps Simeon as collateral, sends him back. Finally gets Benjamin, he meets Benjamin, gives him a double portion of food, sits him according to their age. The whole thing is revealed. They eventually have to go back and tell Jacob. Can you just imagine that for a second? Can you imagine the brothers going back to tell their dad, we actually lied a number of years ago, 
Jake, uh, he, Joseph's not dead. He's actually alive. I mean, the, the reveal of that, Jacob finally comes down because there's a huge famine in the land, blesses uh, Manasseh and Ephraim, and then that's where we pick up the text today. After he blesses them, he dies. And then verse 15. When Joseph's brother saw that their father was dead, they say, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of your servants, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we're your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Then he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, it's very interesting. Let's look at the brothers uh, first. The brothers, without the father in the picture, the brothers who probably don't have a deep belief in sovereignty, immediately think, I've got to go into negotiation. I need some kind of settlement. Without the father's oversight, without the father's protection, I've got to work this out myself. And the same is true with us. If we don't have a heavenly father that we believe governs and guides and is sovereign over all things, we will spend our lives trying to negotiate ourselves out of our own sin. Trying to negotiate with others, trying to negotiate with our own hearts, trying to figure that out, trying to figure out why things happened. As William Law says, this is a great quote, he says, There is no foundation for comfort in the enjoyments of this life but in the assurance that a wise and a good God governs the world. See, without the doctrine of sovereignty, that God is personal and he governs over all things, you can't enjoy the good things in life. You'll become suspicious of them. I've told you this story before, but uh, one day, uh, about two years ago, I got three emails in a row, uh, all of them, back to back to back, probably within a 30-minute period, and they were all so deeply encouraging. And you know what my response to that was? What's going to happen next? What's God setting me up for? When's he going to pull the rug out from under me? That was my initial reaction. I couldn't enjoy them. I was suspicious. Without sovereignty, you will be suspicious of even the good things that happen in your life. But without sovereignty, when the difficult things come in your life, You'll be incredibly anxious. Um, I love what Paul David Tripp says. He says, some of our hearts are so wobbly, we're so tenuous on the doctrine of sovereignty, that some of our hearts, when we have a flat tire in the morning, will go 75% of the way towards atheism. Isn't that true? It, you, you have one thing bad happen to you, and you're like 75%, 80% of the way of thinking God doesn't even exist anymore because we're so tenuous. 
on this doctrine of sovereignty. But we see Joseph's reaction, and that's just what I want to highlight here. Look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He refused to take the place of judgment to determine what happened. He refused refused to accept that throne. And instead, he believed deeply in God's sovereignty. I tell this story probably once a year because uh, it's an important story. And I just told our, our youth group um, when I was on the ski trip. And it's an emotional story, so I'll try to get through it. But when I was a youth pastor, there was a girl in the youth group uh, named Bethany. It's who my daughter is uh, named after. Catherine Bethany Lewis is my oldest daughter's name, and Bethany got cancer. I remember I told the kids, the youth group, when we were in uh, San Luis, Puerto Sea, I believe, we were on a mission trip together, and I gathered the youth group because I had got a call from the States and said, it doesn't look good. We're not sure she'll make it by the time we get back. Well, she did. She made it a couple months after that. And... Uh, we would visit with her quite a bit in the hospital. That was back in the day where you could go visit people in the hospital. I long for those days to return. And I remember she said to me once, and many of us, Andy, don't worry. The worst thing that could ever happen to me is the best thing. The worst thing that could ever happen to me, I die, is the best thing for me because I get to go be with Jesus. She was a beautiful girl. All of this life in front of her died at 18 and did it faithfully because she grew up in this church and believed in the sovereignty of God. She's never kissed. Except one time when she was in a play and they forced her to kiss a guy. And we would joke about that at the end of her life. She, she said, I've never had a boyfriend. I've never been kissed. I'm going to miss that. But the, the worst thing that could happen to me is the best thing. Am I in the place of God, says Joseph? Do I get to decide what happens to my life? Am I on the, one, on the throne dictating this? Joseph himself, think of all the years wasted in prison. All the years when he was forgotten by the cupbearer after he interpreted the... All the years of not seeing his father Jacob or his brothers or Benjamin. All the time that he maybe wanted to get back to that one Israeli girl, but now he's stuck in Egypt. All those times at the end of his life because of the sovereignty of God, he says, am I in the place of God? Look at what he says after that, verse 20. And for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God works, as we know, Romans 8, all things together for good. And here's the beautiful part about being a believer. Nothing is wasted by God. Your sin isn't wasted. Your pain isn't wasted. Your suffering isn't wasted. Your story isn't wasted. God redeems and uses everything in your life, whether it's done to you or done by you. He uses everything in your life for His glory and for your good. 
That's just, when you become a believer, that's the system that you're coming into. I've got a good friend of mine. Um, he was, and there's no other way to say it, but just to say it, so, sorry. Uh, he was raped when he was in eighth grade by a high school teacher, female. You see those stories on the news, right? But I know a guy that that actually happened to. And then he went on and he became uh, a football player, got a full ride. I'm not going to tell you the school because uh, in a second you'll know why. Got a full ride at, as a cornerback to a Division I uh, football program. And at the height of his athletic career, in the major championship game, when he was covering a wide receiver as a cornerback, he fell down on the play, and that's how they scored the touchdown to win the championship. And the picture of him falling down on the play was the one that they put in Sports Illustrated. <laughs> it was the one they put on the front page. At the height of his career, everything he did, the one thing on the front page, he said, of ESPN was the picture of him falling down in the background with a look of grimace on his face. Plastered for everybody to see. That's the guy that fell down on the play. He was a pastor for a while. He still believes and loves Jesus, and he's a good friend of mine. And he said to me, Andy, here's the deal. I've had two extraordinary things happen in my life. One done to me, one done by me that are only placed in my life because I now have this unique ability to speak into other people's lives in a way that nobody else could. And God's redeeming it. And he has ministries actually surrounded both of those events in his life where he speaks to football players who have failed and he speaks to people who have been sexually and physically abused because he says God's going to redeem this for good. He could have become bitter. He could have become frustrated. He could have said, woe is me. And he said, no, these are put in my life, one done to me, one done by me, for the sole purpose of me bringing glory to God. So I'm going to do it. God works all things together. For good. God meant it, as Joseph said, for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And then at the end of verse 21, so do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. I've told this story uh, as well, but I preached on this text um, probably three years ago, I think. Remember, we did a, a series on the sovereignty of God. I think I did 11 or 12. Uh, sermons on that right before the pandemic. Not sure it took for all of us, uh, but we at least covered the, the material. And I remember I, I told a story about one of our high school kids who's now in college. Uh, one of the people uh, in his high school were continually mean to him, uh, continually unkind to him. And the high school kid of this church responded to that meanness with kindness and kept giving kindness, and kept giving kindness. And the other kid, who was the mean kid, eventually became a Christian because of the kindness of one of our high school kids. It says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of God. 
And so when we come to this text, and we see if you have this doctrine of sovereignty deep within your hearts, at the time that you could just blast somebody, at the time that Joseph had every right, did he not? To say, I'm cutting you out of my lives forever. I'm going to take Benjamin, I'm going to take Rachel, my mom, I'm going to take my family, and you guys are done. You tried to sell me, you tried to kill me, and then you sold me into slavery. Do you know how much of my life has been lost because of you guys? Do you know what happened to me in prison at the time where he could have done all of that? He spoke to them kindly. He comforted them. Think about that. These characters that we see in the Bible are real people. That's why I try to tell our fellows class all the time when I teach them through the Old Testament. These are real people with real emotions, just like you and just like me. And at the very moment, the denouement, the very moment where he could have brought all of the wrath, he spoke kindly. And so, friends, we can too when somebody cuts you off in traffic. Uh, when somebody doesn't do what you expect them to. When the waitress messes up your order. When your husband forgets to take out the trash. Uh, when your journey group leader talks incessantly about himself and never asks you a question. You can show kindness. And you can comfort when you have the upper hand. Well, let me just talk lastly about your story. I'm going to end here with three questions very quickly. Uh, but I can't do that without giving you some bigger picture of what's happening here in the Scripture. I was helped immensely this uh, last week by a couple of really good biblical scholars, Hebrew scholars, that helped me see this text a little bit differently. And so you're going to have to do some heavy lifting right now, biblically-wise. So just work with me, okay? But I believe in you. Um, I believe you can do this. Uh, a lot of scholars think that this Joseph story is not just a story of Joseph, but it's a prototype story. For example, in Daniel, uh, they summoned the magicians to try to interpret a dream. And the word there for magicians is an Egyptian word. Now, why would that word be an Egyptian word in Daniel? This only used one other time, and it's used in the story of Joseph and it's an Egyptian word because Joseph was in Egypt. And biblical scholars will say that's a tip of the hat for us to see the Daniel story through the eyes of a Joseph-type story. There's all these parallels with those two books. And then there's a guy named Jehoiachin. You don't know Jehoiachin yet, but you'll meet him when you get to the end of 2 Kings. The kingdom divided into two, and Jehoiachin was the last ruler of the southern kingdom. And Jeho Jehoiachin got put also in prison, and then he was released. And the exact Hebrew phrasing from Jehoiachin being released and putting on new clothes, and Joseph being released and putting on new clothes, is the exact same Hebrew phrasing. Now, that just doesn't happen naturally. Uh, those are all tips of the hat of the biblical writers to say, see Jehoiachin's story through the lens of Joseph's story. And then Esther, there are so many incredible parallels with Esther and the story of Joseph. I don't have time to go into it, but they are intense. Uh, the same phrase used for the party, both of them. Joseph is this handsome guy. Uh, Esther is this beautiful woman. Again, the same exact phrasing being used there. And biblical scholars think Joseph's story should be seen 
through the story of Esther. Esther's story should be seen through the story of Joseph. All of them, Jehoiachin, Daniel, Joseph, and Esther, all of them found themselves homeless, exiled, scared, uh, oppressed, wondering what's going to happen to them. And they had four different responses. Jehoiachin teaches us to quietly accept suffering. Esther teaches us that there might be a time where we have to take an active stand for such a time as this. Daniel goes out of his way to emphasize that he's not a part of that culture and is countercultural. And then Joseph realized he loses a lot of years, but he uses his power and influence for the greater good. All of them, four people that have four different stories, all believing in God's sovereignty, and all respond in four different ways. So that helps us to see there's not just one way to do this. So let me end with these three questions. I think they'll be on the screen. Number one, what's God calling you to? To be a Jehoiachin and to quietly accept the suffering of whatever it is that's in your life? Uh, to be an Esther and to work in an active way, in the way that only you could. To be a Daniel and to be countercultural. Uh, to be a Joseph and to use your power and influence for the common greater good. What is God right now? Right now, what is God calling you to in your life? How are you going to use and understand his sovereignty to give him glory? What about your story? What about your sin? What about your sorrow? What, what in your life do you need to use to give Christ glory? Number two, this is a little bit harder, but I ask you to do it. What are you, where are you bitter at God? Uh, I've got a friend who said to me the other day, I said, how are you doing, buddy? And I had lunch with him, and uh, he's a member of this church. And he said, I'm, I'm doing pretty good for only being a Christian for six years. <laughs> I just love that. Just became a Christian a couple years ago and says, in the grand scheme of things, I'm growing. My life is not where it wants to be, but I am growing. I've only been Christian. I've only been at this for six years. I'm not going to be bitter about everything that happened in my past. Where are you bitter? Where in your story of things that have been done to you or things that you have done yourself that you can't let go of? Where are you bitter towards God? And number three, where do you need, what do you need to offer up in worship? J.I. Packer talks about sovereignty this way. People treat God's sovereignty as a matter of controversy. But in Scripture, it is a matter of worship. If you ask, why is this happening? No light might come. But if you ask, how am I to glorify God now? There will always be an answer. How do I glorify God now? can always find the answer to that. At the end of this text, Joseph, look at verse 22, remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machar, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. Verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land. And he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and he will carry up my bones from here. Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and they put him in a coffin of Egypt. And so ends the book of Genesis. 
with a huge question mark. How's God going to do it? How's he going to work this out? Joseph, the great patriarch, dead in Egypt, never made it back. And that's how the whole book ends. And we can't understand the death of Joseph, Joseph, Joseph without also seeing the death of Christ, obviously, who also lived in exile, who also lived homeless, who didn't just give up his cloak but was stripped of it, who also on the cross took all the pain and all the suffering, who also works for the common good of all people, who also speaks kindly to us. There's that beautiful end of Hamilton, the musical, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. All of us want to be known, but you're not going to be. Nobody in this church that I know of is going to have a biography written about them. And in 50 years, nobody's going to remember your name, most likely. I I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that's just the way it works. And nobody's going to remember my name. And at the best, the PCA will be a footnote in the history of Christianity, at possible best. Nobody in this room, I don't think our name is going to be on lights or on a building at Clemson, maybe somebody, I don't know. But so far as I can see it, nobody's in a position to do that yet. So who lives and who dies and who tells your story? What's your hope? Your hope is that God will. That one day, in the new heavens, in the new earth, God will tell your story. And he'll say, I was sovereign over you the whole time. I know evil happened to you, but nothing was outside of my control. And this is why I allowed it to happen. And this is what I brought into your life. And look at the way I protected you. And look at the way I gave you grace. See all these things. I know your story. Because I'm governing it. And I'm guiding it. For your good. And for my glory. And I can't, I can't wait to hear from the Lord himself. How he's guiding and governing your story, and mine. It's going to be altogether glorious. In the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, we pray now for those of us who are struggling with sovereignty, with what you've brought into our lives, with what you're doing, or allowing to be done to us. We pray that whatever it is, we take it, And we'd use it for worship. Our stories, like Joseph's story, might not end the way we want it to even. Dying and embalmed in a coffin in Egypt and never making it back to his hometown. Filled with all kinds of turns and trials. We had those two little boys, Manasseh and Ephraim. A recognition that even though that's not the way he ever wanted to go, and even though it was brought upon him, Potiphar's wife, from his own brothers, he never became bitter. Instead, he, he seeked to look to you, not accepting the throne of judgment, recognizing he's not in your place. Humbly playing his role like Esther, like Daniel, like Jehoiachin. Giving kindness and mercy 
because he was so deeply rooted in the sovereignty of God, looking for ways that you would work good out of evil. These are not trite things that we read and that we study when we come into this room. So I pray for my friends this week that when we do get a, uh, a flat tire, a terse email, that it wouldn't take us 75% of the way towards atheism. That we be willing this week to live uh, a life of trust in you and joy and faith in you. That you're not only a God who governs this world, but you're a personal sovereign God who, as we read in Psalm 147, who heals the brokenhearted. You bind up our wounds. You bottle up our tears. So humble us before your mighty hand. May we start to see again how big and how truly awesome you are. And may we be in awe of the fact that you actually know our names and not a hair can fall from our head without the will of our Father in heaven. So we don't have to live a life of suspicion or a life of anxiousness. We can live a life of worship, one where we spend our days glorifying you until you take us home. But we need to deeply believe, God, that your sovereignty makes our story sweeter. Without it, without your sovereignty, our story is bitter, filled with resentment, hate, feeling like we can't, <laughs> never lived up to our potential. But with your sovereignty, our story becomes sweet, becomes rich, becomes meaningful. Our small little brief lives in this world become something of eternal value because of who you are and how you've redeemed us. Help us to believe these truths this week, we pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing to the one who redeems our stories, to our Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son.